Yo, I don't know if you uh, knew this before or not, um, but crazy thing been happening uh, this last year. It was called a pandemic. And it uh, kind of affected some stuff. I don't know if it affected you much. It affected me a little bit. One of the ways that it affected me is actually has to do with some uh, habits that I had. You see, uh, before the pandemic, I used to kind of have a habit. I mean, I don't know if you can really call it a habit when you only do it like once or twice a week. But it was a habit of working out, okay? Now, uh, I used to have this habit. Uh, I, I used to like to do these things called uh, HIT, high-intensity interval training, okay? Now, uh, that sounds really cool. Uh, like some of y'all like into that beach body stuff with Sean T. Okay, I was more in the uh, Biggest Loser videos that they had, all right, with Bob and the Biggest Loser cast. Uh, a little bit more of my pace. Uh, the sad thing was is they were all in better shape than me, but... I like to do them, and the only reason I like to do those uh, is actually not because I enjoy exercising, uh, but because they're really short, so I could get it over with quick. Now, uh, when the pandemic came about, though, I found that I was beginning to lose a little bit of motivation for wanting to work out, and so I developed a new habit, all right? My new habit was ice cream, okay? Like legit. And I ain't trying to brag or nothing, but I was devoted to this habit, all right? Like I'm talking like five, six times a week, and it began to show, like in a number of different ways it began. So uh, all of us, I think, picked up some different habits and lost some different habits during the pandemic. So what I want you to do right now, we have a little interaction, turn to the person next to you and tell them one habit you think that you either picked up or lost during the pandemic and go. All right, now I got to try to pull y'all back. Look, the, the truth is not every habit that we picked up or lost during the pandemic was bad, right? I know at least for uh, my family, um, we rested a little bit more than we probably had previously. We ate more meals together as a family than we had in probably a number of years because we were all together and everything was shut down. It was a wonderful thing. Uh, there were some other things, though, like ice cream and probably the amount of TV that we began to consume that probably weren't quite as good. Uh, this is kind of a, uh, an old but good illustration, all right? Some of y'all have seen this before. Some of y'all, I'm about to blow your minds, okay? So uh, what we got here is an uh, empty jar, right? Is it full? No, it's not full, exactly. Somebody's be like, it's full of air. No, it's not. It's empty, Okay. Now, if I were to take, though, some rocks, right, and I would set these down inside there. Let me see how many I can get. Well, that one's too big. All right. So uh, now is the jar full. Right? Ah, this is good. See? Some of you are like, yeah, it's full. You can't get any more rocks. Some of you are like, no, it's not full. Those of you that said no, you're right. You're exactly right. See? Because I can add some some of the sand into it, okay? Shake it around a little bit. Oh, that's good. All right, is it full now? Yeah. Ah, see, now y'all are on to me. Y'all are on to me now, right? Because, of course, I can then add 
All right, now, this is probably not good for glass, but all right, is it full now? Yes, it's full, right? Oh, now it's bubbling. Oh, it's going to make a fool out of me. That's okay. It's full, people, for the sake of the illustration. Completely, utterly full. Can't get anything else in it. So what's the point of the illustration? A lot of times people see this and say, oh, the point is obviously you can always get more in it. Ah, Not the point of the illustration. The point of the illustration is you got to put the big rocks in first. Right? And the same thing is true in our lives. Our lives always fill up with all kinds of different things. And if we don't take the things that matter the most, that are the most important to our flourishing, we'll never fit them in because our lives will always fill up with random various things that always wind up creeping, flowing into our lives. You got to put the big rocks in first. Not all habits are created equal. Not all habits are created equal. Now, if you call yourself a follower of Jesus, and and this is true whether you've been following Jesus for just a little bit of time or you've been following Jesus for a long time, there are certain habits, certain things that God has instituted and ordained for us so that we can live a flourishing life. These habits are necessary for us to enjoy the life that God desires for us. When Jesus said, I've come to give you life and give you life to the full, Jesus didn't just say words. He also gave us practices, habits, so that we could learn how to live into that life. Now, the ideas that we're going to talk about over the next four weeks of this new series, Rehabit, are not new ideas. My guess is many of you have probably heard them at least once, if not multiple times. But sometimes the things that are the most simple and the most basic are the easiest ones to kind of lose or forget about or kind of push to the side. And so there is a reason that God reminds us of these things consistently and constantly, right? What do they say? Repetition is the mother of learning. It is one of those things that we need. In fact, there's a commercial on some insurance company, I don't remember what, and they say that. Repetition is the mother of learning. And so they literally say the exact same commercial twice in a row to try to make you remember. I didn't remember who it was, but I did remember the commercial, okay? So what I want to say today is that even though these ideas are not maybe new and they will not be something you've never heard before, they're incredibly important. In fact, they're so important that people have actually been jailed over these, have been willing to be tortured and beaten, uh, even killed for these practices. Now, we live in America, and so because of our freedoms that are afforded to us, uh, quite honestly, it's a wonderful, beautiful, amazing thing, but it also can at times make us very apathetic to these important things. What we want to do this morning is spend a little bit of time engaging with God's Word on some habits that are necessary for our flourishing. Look, the pandemic's gotten all of us out of some habits and replaced those with different habits, and some of that is good. But today is an opportunity for the next four weeks for us to begin to evaluate the habits that we have found ourselves in to say, are the big rocks in there? Or do I maybe need to dump out my life a little bit over these next few weeks and replace some things within? 
So let's turn together to Acts chapter 2. We're actually going to be focusing on just six verses over the next four weeks. Uh, But we're going to kind of set ourselves up this morning by engaging in the context. Now, uh, Acts is written by a guy named Luke. It's actually kind of part two of his story. He writes the Gospel of Luke that we often read, especially uh, around Christmas time. And uh, the Gospel of Luke is really Luke's explanation to a friend of his uh, that he wrote to, uh, explaining Jesus' life, his ministry especially, uh, what he does, what he teaches, and then his death, and then, of course, ultimately his resurrection. At the end of the Gospel of Luke, Jesus has risen back to life, and then the book of Acts begins, and that's actually kind of part two picks up where Jesus is resurrected, and then Jesus goes back to heaven to sit at the right hand of the Father so that he can send the Holy Spirit, and the church is born, and when the church is born, uh, we basically get about 30 years worth of the church's history in the book of Acts. So it's really kind of uh, one book in two parts, if you will. Acts chapter 2. Right now, as we get into Acts 2, what we find is that Jesus has been resurrected for about 40 days at this point. After 40 days, Jesus has been teaching his disciples and a whole lot of other folks, and then Jesus in front of the disciples says, hey, I'm I'm going to leave, and I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to you. He gives them the great commission. He goes back up to heaven, and he tells them, go to Jerusalem and start praying And so they do that. They go to Jerusalem, they start praying. We think it may have even been the same upper room that they're praying in where Jesus actually took the Last Supper with his disciples. We're not 100% sure, but they're in another upper room and they're praying for about seven to 10 days. We're not 100% sure, uh, about a little over a week, somewhere in that ballpark. And that's when God the Father sends the Holy Spirit and he comes down on the day that we call Pentecost, okay? Now, When the Holy Spirit comes down, tongues of fire, all the folks in the room, they kind of come out and they're in the temple square and they're speaking in other languages. But a lot of the Jews that happened to be there at the time, they're like, what are these guys doing? Some of them accuse them of being drunk. And Peter's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. They ain't drunk. It's only noon. (laughs) Like, I've seen drunk people at noon before. But uh, Peter makes a a decent point right there. And he says, they're not drunk. In fact, he says, it's actually the Holy Spirit. And it's been prophesied. All right? So we're going to pick up the story here in verse 22. Because Peter begins to tell everybody that's there around the temple what is actually happening. He's explaining to them the good news, the gospel. He says, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. He's talking to people that literally saw stuff, all right? Some of these folks would have been part of the 5,000 that Jesus fed. Some of these folks would have known Lazarus who had died and had been resurrected. Some of these folks would have known the woman who was healed. Some of these folks uh, would have known the lepers who were healed, all right? They would have seen the things that Jesus had actually done. Some of those folks actually had seen resurrected Jesus. So he's like, look, God did all these signs among you through Jesus, and you know that. Verse 23, this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. 
But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Flip down to verse 37 now of chapter 2. It says, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? They believed. They're like, we're, we're, we, 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 that's us. We did see it. We did crucify him. We did see him resurrected. What do we need to do? So Peter replied, verse 38, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promises for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Now, we get to this point, and again, Luke is giving us kind of a history of how the church came about. And now, Luke is going to move from basically sharing a firsthand account of what took place to narrating what happens after this moment, all right? So we've got at least 3,100 followers of Jesus, we know that over the next number of days, weeks, and months, that more and more people uh, heard the good news of Jesus there in and around Jerusalem and began to believe that Jesus was Messiah, believed in his death and resurrection, and decided to follow Jesus. And so the church continued to grow in these first early days, weeks, and months. And there were four things that the church then devoted themselves to and there were a couple of things that happened as a result of that devotion. What I want to do today is we're literally going to look at one half of one verse, okay? I'm going to talk about the first two things that they devoted themselves to. The next week, we'll talk about the next two things that they devoted themselves to. And then the last two weeks, we're going to spend some time looking at what are the results of that devotion, what actually happened. Because, friends, I believe that if we will rehabit ourselves, redevote ourselves to these four things, we will see unbelievable, amazing acts of God in our midst as well. This is what God desires for us, what he wants for us. And, mm, friends, what I want for us too. I just said, mm. So it made it sound like I maybe wanted it more than God. Not true. God wants it. God's like, mm, I'm that. And Torrin's like, yeah, yeah, come on, y'all. We should do this. So uh, let's keep working on this together. Acts chapter 2, verse 42a. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. That's what they devoted themselves to. The apostles' teaching. That's the first thing of the four that they devoted themselves to. Now, what does that actually mean that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching? What was the apostles' teaching? Truth is, we're not told 100%. We got some pretty good ideas based on what the rest of the New Testament actually teaches us. Uh, but here's what we do know. 
The disciples, the apostles, they had spent the last three years walking with Jesus, spending every pretty much waking moment with him. They heard all the things that he said. They heard how he interpreted the Old Testament, how he said that he was actually the way, the truth, and the life, that no man comes to the Father except through him. They heard all of his teaching. Uh, They heard the way that he wanted people to live their lives. Like, they got to spend a lot of time. And so what they did is they just started talking about all the things that they had heard him teach. In fact, that's what Jesus said that they're supposed to do. Jesus told them just before he went to heaven, I want you to go into all the world. Preach the gospel. Tell people about me. I want you to baptize people in my name. I I want you to teach them everything that I have commanded you. And and Jesus also said, and I promise to be with you. That's why he sent the Holy Spirit, to indwell them. Uh, Dr. Ajith Fernando says this. He says, from the gospel in Acts, we can say that it likely included, the apostles' teaching, explanations of the nature of salvation, the person and work of Christ, the commands of Christ, and other features of the Christian life, and the message of the kingdom, the kingdom of God. All right, so that's probably what they're teaching, but here's the reality. It doesn't matter that much for us. You know why? Because we have the Bible now. We have the New Testament. So everything that God intended and desired that we would know about what a Christian is supposed to do, how we're supposed to live, how we're supposed to act, ethics, the things that we are intended to know and live so that we can enjoy this flourishing life that Jesus came to give us. Brothers and sisters, we got it. We have it. So it's not a big deal whether we know exactly what the apostles' teaching was because now we have everything that we need. God wasn't going to leave us. He promised us that. The Holy Spirit, we believe, inspired the writers of the Old Testament and the New Testament so that they would say exactly what God desired for them to say. Now, he used their personalities. He used their language. He used their experiences to do that. But everything that God wanted you to know about himself how we can enjoy salvation, what it means to uh, live the Christian life, what he desires for us, how we can experience life and life to the full. We've got it. It's all right here. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. I'm going to read it from the New Living Translation. We usually teach out of the NIV, New International Version. NLT says it a little bit differently, and I like how they say it. 2 Timothy 3, 16. All Scripture it's the whole Bible, is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we're wrong and teaches us to do what is right. That's what the Bible does for us. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching because they didn't have the New Testament yet. Friends, we devote ourselves to Scripture, to the New Testament, to the Old Testament, to the Bible. This is God's word for us, for you and for me. This is a supernatural book. It's not just some folks who decided to write it out. We did a whole series on the Bible. Uh, I loved prepping for that series and teaching that series. Uh, We called it The Good Book. It was a few years ago. If you didn't get a chance, go podcast that bad boy. There's so much that we learn about God's word and even how it came to us and why it's trustworthy and how we can hold on to it. And friends, we have to devote ourselves to this thing. This is the thing that helps us understand what is true, what is right, what we're to go after, how we're supposed to care for one another. 
It's not just something that we get to make up on our own. Now, I'm not saying that there's no interpretation of it. There is. Of course there is. And that's why it's so important that we not just pay attention to the first part of this verse, what they devoted themselves to, but we continue reading. Now, uh, before I have you continue read, though, I want to ask you this true-false question, a little bit more interaction. All right? True-false. If you become a Christian and you have the Bible, you don't need anything else. Turn to the person next to you, tell them whether you think that's true or false and why. Go. Some of y'all feel like this is a little bit of a trick question, don't you? You're like, well, I think it sounds kind of true, but no, it's false. It's straight up false, 100% false, okay? If you become a Christian, all right, and you have the Bible, you don't need anything else. That's false. No, there's a lot of other things that you actually need. In fact, I've heard people say this. Look like, oh, man, I got the Bible. What else do I, I don't need anything else. Like, I'm a Christian, the Holy Spirit's living me, I got the Bible, and that's all that I need. And to that I would say, if you actually read the Bible, you would know that the Bible teaches that that's not the only thing that you need. In fact, if we continue on, we will realize why the next thing is so important in our understanding of Scripture. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship. Now, in the NIV, it actually says, and to fellowship, all right? In the original Greek, it's actually, there's a the there in front of each one of the four things that they devoted. The apostles' teaching, the fellowship, and you'll get the next two next week. But it's interesting that it says the fellowship. Now, in the Greek, um, I'm not like a Greek scholar. I keep saying Greek words. I don't really know the Greek that well, to be honest. I just learned from other really smart people, okay? And then I pass on what I learned to you. Now, in the Greek, the word here for fellowship or the fellowship is the word koinonia, okay? If you've been around church at all, you've probably heard that word before. You might have even gone to like koinonia coffee shop that some Christians decided to start, all right? You might have even had like youth group. It was called like koinonia group, something like that, all right? So if you grew up around the church, like this, like you've heard it before, but If you didn't grow up around the church, you probably never heard this word before. And the truth is, whether you grew up around the church or you didn't grow up around the church, whether you heard the word or not, most folks still don't really know what it means. Like fellowship. Okay, but what the heck is fellowship? (laughs) Seriously. When's the last time you used the word fellowship in a sentence? (laughs) Right? That's exactly it. Lord of the Rings. That's not... (laughs) No, no, that's the last time you, last time, that's the last time you said the word fellowship. All right, Lord of the Rings, fellowship. Now, here's what's great about that, actually, okay? I was thinking about this this morning, because I was like, somebody's going to say Lord of the Rings. <laughs> what was the fellowship? What was it? A, a band of different people from different nationalities coming together, right, for a common mission that they were going to give themselves to, even though they had very little in common originally. And yet as they banded together to do this mission, they began to sacrifice for one another and love one another and care for one another in a way that was extraordinary and completely unexpected from when you first meet them. What did J.R. Tolkien actually create? 
He created a church. You see, the word fellowship or the fellowship is actually a nickname that we get for the church. When it says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, that was a nickname for the church. Now, let me explain what fellowship means because it's so actually important, all right? Uh, The basic idea of koinonia or fellowship is sharing. That's the basic idea. We we share. That's koinonia. But it also uh, shows a level of intimacy and fellowship. Now, again, fellowship, like it's this churchy word, right? The only thing, if it wasn't fellowship of the ring, right, from Lord of the Rings, uh, the last time you used it was when you went to an old Baptist church and you had a potluck in the fellowship hall, right? Because that, that's like the only other time we ever, fellowship hall. Like, what is fellowship? Let me explain to you what fellowship is, a long definition, but there's no way for us to understand all the nuance and depth that this word koinonia has without breaking it down a little bit further. So let me, let me give it to you this way. Fellowship means having or sharing with others certain things in common such as interests, goals, feelings, beliefs, activities, labor, privileges and responsibilities, experiences and concerns, and implies a sense of mutual belonging and partnership. It is opposed to isolation, solitude, loneliness, and our present-day independent kind of individualism. You see what fellowship is? It's kind of like being a part of a family or a business where there is a common goal and you all pool what you have together, your experiences, your passions, your giftings to accomplish the goal. And in so doing, there is an intimacy of sharing that takes place where not one is better than the other, but we say together we will come to get this thing done. That's what fellowship is. Fellowship says, you know what? I'm not just in it for myself. I'm in it together. Fellowship has depth and richness. There's power in fellowship. But the truth is, man, I just don't think we often get it. We don't just, we don't understand it. Part of it is because we live in the West. And in the West, there's a whole lot of koinonia killers. Uh, There's this guy, Hampton Keithley, passed away about 20 years ago now. Uh, He says that there's three enemies of fellowship in our culture. The first one is relativism. Relativism. It's the belief that there is no absolutes of truth, of good and evil, or of values and priorities. Okay? So when there's no constants, right, you can't actually have fellowship. Relativism is a fellowship killer. Now, I'm not saying you can't ever have a difference of opinion or have conversations about stuff, but when we just simply say, you know what? It's relative. And if you think that, that's fine. And if I think this, it's fine. If there's no uh, agreed upon priorities or values, it's impossible to actually kind of have the kind of fellowship that scripture says that the first church devoted themselves to. Uh, Isaiah actually said this a couple thousand years ago in a prophecy to Israel. Isaiah chapter 5, verses 20 and 21, he says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. The second enemy of fellowship in our culture is privatization, okay? 
privatization. This is the belief that what I do is my own business, and as long as it doesn't affect you, it doesn't matter. Privatization. Now, in the church, uh, we do this quite a bit as well. All right? Uh, We like people to know about as much as we want them to know. Okay? If you get into a small group, then you make a secondary decision like, well, am I really going to tell them what I'm like? Am I really willing to tell them what I think and how I feel and uh, uh, what's going on inside my inner life or what's going on uh, in my internet life or what's going on at my work life, right? Because it's like, well, this is, some of that's kind of private. So privatization actually robs us of the kind of fellowship that Scripture says that the first church, the early church, that's what they actually devoted themselves to. Uh, Not only that, okay, we don't want to get sucked too deep into somebody else's messy, messed up life either, do we? (laughs) Truth be told, like, yo, 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 uh, uh, I know my demons, right? Sometimes I cuddle with them, okay? I don't want to know yours. Mine are messed up enough. I don't want to actually get into your messy life, and so we just got to hold people at arm's distance. The problem is that that's a koinonia killer. You can't have fellowship with people that you don't actually know. It's like trying to have a relationship with a mask. (laughs) A mask is nothing. A mask is just some fake thing we hold up in front of ourselves. You can only have a relationship with a real person. And if we're going to be the kind of church that God desires for us, we've got to rehabit ourselves and say, we're going to engage in God's word, but we're also going to do it together in community, in fellowship. The third fellowship killer is individualism. It's a way of life in which self is at the center. And this is true for pretty much any Western culture. The all-consuming pursuit of self-fulfillment that characterizes this brand of individualism inevitably leaves wreckage in its wake, says Hampton Keithley. Look, friends, um, the truth is there's two kingdoms at war for our lives. There always has been There always will be. And go. That other wolf is hateful. He fights no matter the reason. Rewind. Start it over. And go. As if there are two wolves living inside you. One wolf is good. He only fights when it is right to do so. That other wolf is hateful. He fights no matter the reason. It's as if these two wolves are both fighting to dominate your spirit. And the boy asks his grandfather, which wolf is stronger? And the grandfather looked into his grandson's eyes and he said, it's the one you feed. Mm, Come on now. It's the one you feed. I need a background track like that. Like I could preach like that dude if I had a background track. It's like, just saying It's the one you feed. You've all heard that illustration before, right? There's two dogs or two wolves living inside of you, right? One's good and one's evil. Which one's going to win? Well, whichever one you feed, right? Whichever one you feed. And the same thing is true for us. Look, friends, the early church devoted themselves to some foundational things. And because of the pandemic, the truth is we've kind of fallen out of a lot of habits that we had that were good before. Now, on the one hand, it probably feels like I'm preaching to the choir, right? Because y'all are here. Y'all are here. And even for those of you that are watching online right now, 
you're tuned in, you're engaged, you're, you're connected. What do we do for the folks that aren't here? How do we help them understand? And what does it look like for you to really engage in fellowship? Not just like lip service about it, but real fellowship. The kind of fellowship that the Bible talks about, this koinonia kind of fellowship, this depth of saying, you know what, I'm willing to open myself up to you and I'm willing to share with you and I'm willing to walk alongside. We got a mission to do and it matters. There's actual people, like real folks, that are living their lives without Jesus, have no idea what it means to have forgiveness, have no idea what it means to experience that kind of relationship, that thing that their heart deeply longs for. And friends, we saw a tragedy just this last week. Maybe it's been a little bit over a, week, a couple weeks ago now, I guess. The, the towers down in Florida, Miami, that collapsed. How much effort and work that team of people put into going and rescuing, trying to find survivors, right? It was a mission, a goal. They assembled around that thing. Friends, eternity's real. The Bible is very clear that there is a heaven and a hell. There is a with God and a separation from God. And we've got to care about this. This isn't meant to like drop a massive guilt trip on you, okay? Like that's not my point. In fact, I'm going to kind of turn it in a good way in just a second. But I do think that there are times that we just need to have a little bit like I need it. God just need a little butt kicking. Can I be like, I do. I'm a pastor, right? I'm always supposed to be on point when it comes to like my faith in church, and, but I'm not. And I need to be reminded that I got to devote myself to this thing and I need to do it in community so that I can understand it appropriately, correctly and live it out, right? That's what we all need. That's why the Christian life is not something that we can do apart from the church. In fact, the truth is it's not that we shouldn't do the Christian life on our own. Okay, it's that you can't do the Christian life on your own apart from the church. It's not that you shouldn't, it's that you literally can't. That's why we need the community. It helps us even understand the word, right? We learn best within community. We apply it best within community. We actually uh, stay accountable to what we've learned best in community. So what I want you to do is just take just a second right now, and I just want you to close your eyes, and this is just you and God, all right? And I just want you to, evaluate your level of fellowship, okay? Just evaluate your level. Where are you at right now? God's not here to judge you. He's not coming in strong with a hammer, with a bat. He just wants to meet with you. You evaluate yourself. slowly pull you back. All right, I'm going to give you three applications. These are going to be super simple and super quick. Three applications to what we just talked about, devoting, as the early church did, ourselves to the apostles' teaching, okay, God's word, and to the fellowship. Number one, attend church consistently. Simple, okay? Attend church consistently, all right? I'm not saying you can never miss a week, but if the difference is between like, ah, it feels nice to just kind of like, you know, 
chill today. Like, I'll catch it on Tuesday or whatever they, whatever they put it online. Like, look, you need the weekly rhythm of coming together, of being around other people, of seeing their faces, of giving a, you know, corona bump if you're still there, or a hug if you're there, wherever you happen to be. Like, you need that. You need to sing. Did you guys hear today? Oh, this is probably the loudest I've heard us sing in a long time. And man, didn't it feel good. Sometimes I need to say words that I don't even know if I believe right now because I know that they're true even when I don't feel it, so I need to, like, say it. And I need to hear other people say it as well. I need to hear you believe that it's true so that it'll help me believe that it's true. We need the church. There's something about that weekly rhythm that says, hey, I'm going to start my week off by coming and engaging and praying and listening to God's words spoken over me and saying truth that I need to be reminded of and doing it with the collective group of people that were on mission together to see something happen. I'm going to share with them the gifts that I have, the resources I have, the passions and experiences that I have because they need me and I need them. Attend church consistently. Number two, get involved in a local group. Look, friends, this is awesome. What we get to do here every Sunday, mm, fantastic. I love it. It's great, all right? But it's not the depth of fellowship that Scripture talks about. You still need to be in with a smaller group of folks that you can really know who they are and what they're like and their struggles and their difficulties, and you can share your struggles and difficulties, your highs and your lows with them together. You can share with one another the resources that you have, the experiences, the gifts all of it. Like, you need that. All of us need that. So get involved in a local group. And then the third application is simply this. Reach out to people you know that, haven't, that you haven't seen for a while. And just take a quick second. And just think about it. Who's somebody that I haven't seen for a while? I used to see him. Maybe your Facebook friends. Maybe you follow them on Insta. Maybe you need to search for them so that you can, like, become Facebook friends so you can just reach out. Look, there's some folks right now that are hanging on by a thread. There's some folks that have, uh, feel like they've walked away from their faith so dramatically that they're not even sure that they feel comfortable coming to church right now. And what they're dying for is an invitation. Somebody say, hey, what, you, I missed you. I wish, you'd, I wish you'd come back. So those are the three applications. They're super simple. Attend church consistently. Get involved in a local group. Reach out to people you know that you haven't seen for a while. Now, I know that this could have felt a little heavy-handed, okay? Could have felt a little harsh at times. I was praying about this this week. I was like, Lord, I feel like I'm, I need to say some things, but I also don't want to say it in a way that kind of like, yo, what's up with him? So I was like, God, how can I like flip it at the end so that it feels like, hey, this is why this matters. This, this is what happens when we do this well. This is how it transforms your life and the lives of other people. And God said, hey, Remember that really cool email that you got this past week? And I was like, I do. And God said, read it. So I have not asked this person's permission, so I'm not going to share their name. And I changed a couple little details. But I'd like to read you this email that I got this past week. She said, first, I want to start by just saying that I've never felt as connected to the word like I do when I'm at TLC. I've been living in Grand Rapids, going to school at Cornerstone University for the past four years. I'll graduate next December. I started going to TLC my sophomore year because I had a friend tell me to try it out. The very first day, 
The message made me bawl my eyes out, and I felt the Holy Spirit boiling up inside of me like I hadn't felt in such a long time. The worship, the teaching, the genuine community of people who actually care about you and your life is like no other church community I've ever experienced before. TLC is my home church. She was saying this because she doesn't live in Grand Rapids, except when she's at school. She says, and I tell everyone about it that I can because I truly believe that it is the church not just for me, but the church that I have felt the closest to Christ in. Before I started coming to TLC, I had kind of strayed in my faith and was trying to rely on myself rather than on God and just had a hard time with praying and reading the Bible. I was even having a hard time feeling that God is even there. But TLC genuinely made me feel like myself again. So I just wanted to say thank you for that because it means the world to me. Uh, friends, that's, that's a letter for all of us. Because that's the kind of church that together we've created. It's not just the people that are up on stage. Do you hear what she said about the community, the way that she feels known and noticed and connected? That's koinonia. And you know what I love? She said something at first that kind of threw me a little bit. But the more that I thought about it, the more I was like, this is so perfect. She said, second to last sentence, TLC genuinely made me feel like myself again. She's a follower of Jesus. She is a daughter of the King of the Most High. When she's at church, that's exactly how she, could, she should feel. That is feeling like yourself at its most beautiful, genuine, honest way. I love that. And friends, that's what I want for all of us. But for that to happen, it means we might have to rehabit ourselves. We might have to pour out our lives a little bit and go and grab the big rocks and put those back in first. Staying connected, devoting ourselves to God's word and doing it in community with one another. Those are the first two things we need to devote ourselves to. The wolf that wins is the one you feed. Father God, let us be a church. Let us be a church that goes after you, God, that is willing to come together and be the koinonia, the fellowship, how we share our lives with one another, how we engage in your word together, how we allow it to shape who we are and what we think and how we live and how we speak and how we spend our time and our money and everything, God. Like this is the difference maker, God, and we know it. And God, this pandemic has thrown all this uh, into like a little crazy. And God, it has for me. I'm sure it has for all of us. So God, you are gently reminding us what we need to devote ourselves to. And God, I pray for anybody right now that's feeling any sense of shame. God, that is not you. That is not your voice. You are not a voice of shame. You are a voice of love. You are a voice of invitation. So God, I pray that they would be able to let that go and for uh the voice of saying, God, that uh, we are being invited back into this beautiful mission with this beautiful family. God, let us hear that voice and respond. Let us respond to say yes. Yes, we will. God, for your glory, that your mission would go forth, that others would find life in you and life to the full, that we would live it out with one another together. We love you. Thanks for loving us. It's in your name we pray. Amen.